Good morning, everybody. So today we are celebrating Trinity Sunday. And when we study Trinitarian theology, we make a distinction between what we call the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. What does this mean? Imminent trinity is sort of studying and looking at the trinity within itself, the relation of the three persons, the unity of the Godhead. The economic trinity is studying persons of the trinity in their relation to creation, through salvation, through the interactions with humans. And so what I want to do today is focus more on the imminent trinity, to look at the trinity in and of itself, but in particular how we as humans and our own behavior or action can reflect certain principles that we see in the trinity. I'm going to do so by taking sort of two contrasting realities, or at least complementary realities, within the Trinity in order to be able to understand this. And the first is the reality, and this is kind of hard to explain, of distance or distinction within the Trinity. So you have three divine persons, but they are separate. Their relationships define who they are as persons. There's a distance in between all three of them. They all are their own person, but they all give space to the other. Again, this is sort of mystical language. The Father gives the space for the Son to be. The Father and the Son give the space for the Spirit to be, of course, space, but we understand what we're talking about here. There's basically freedom. The Father respects the freedom of the Son. The Son respects the freedom of the Holy Spirit. They can only do so because of that distance that is present in the Trinity. And so we can kind of call this a phrase that I've used before that comes from the Italian theologian Luigi Giussani, possession and detachment. Yes, they're all unified, they all love each other, but there's a detachment, there's a distance in between the persons of the Trinity. And so how do we take this reality of distance, of freedom, of possession, attachment, and apply it to our own lives? I think we specifically can apply it to the relationship of parents to children, but I'm sure in a certain sense we could apply it to any relation familiar relations, friendship relations. It basically comes down to this. Parents, you have got to give your space, space for your children to grow, for your children to exist, to give them the freedom to be and become who they are. We know this phenomena of helicopter parents who, who hover over their children, who smother their children, who want what's best for them, but they act more like a coach than a parent. This is not Trinitarian. We have to give our children space. While your intentions may be good, what happens is when they come to me, they are neurotic perfectionists who don't really know that they are loved for who they are, but instead they believe they are loved only if they perform. It's important to be able to have expectations with our children, but we've got to give them freedom to have that distance. We are not our children. To give them the freedom to grow, to develop, 
to be able to make good moral choices. Now you say, Father, this is all wonderful. We give our children that, that space, that distance. We own our children. It's possession and detachment. But they're not our, they're, they're our possessions. We don't own them. We can't control them. But how do we do this? Because guess what? My son or daughter is not Jesus. It's not. A kid is not perfect. We understand, yes, they need to be formed. They need to be educated. It's the responsibility of parents. Because indeed, children can choose the wrong thing. When we come to older children, when they become adults, it's so often a difficulty. Parents come and say, uh, my, my son or my daughter's left the church. They're no longer practicing the faith. They've gone into a life of sin. And what happens is we see that parent want to control the child, even though the child is 21, 22. And the only recourse that I can really say is go look at the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. The father knew what the son was going to do, but he still let him do it. He didn't go chase after him. Probably told him, hey, you're going to make a mistake. But he respected the freedom of the older son. There was that distance there. In the same way with the older son, he couldn't force that son to come into the house. There was the distance. He wished there was a deeper unity, but he had to respect the son's freedom to give him the space to choose. But with kids, how do we do this? With kids who are imperfect, we're not talking about adults, where it's maybe easier to respect their freedom, to give them the space. Uh, I, I can't, I'm not a, a child therapist. I can't tell you exactly what is the best program or the best way of doing this. But I, I thought, as I was praying and preparing for this, that there is one way, specific way or, or place, I guess, where children learn to choose, where they have that freedom, that space to be able to respect rules, respect other people, to be able to cooperate, to be able to grow and flourish. That space is play. Whenever children play, that is when they have, I think ideally, the space, the distance, to be able to grow, to be able to exercise their freedom, to be able to develop it. I've done some study on the theories of play, but what it is is in order to be able to play, a child has to have safe space, has to feel safe and secure. And so you can't do it in the street with this chaos or a threat. And there's freedom there. Children need to have that freedom to play. You can't tell them this is what you're going to do the sandbox. You can use what you have and use your imagination to be able to build and construct worlds, to have, have fun, to play these different games and so many different types of them. It could be a board game, it could be a, a game of imagination, hide and seek, sports, whatever it is. But whatever way a child plays, it's not anarchy. Remember some of you are old enough to remember Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon. Calvin liked to play Calvin Ball. They made up the rules as they went. It's not how it works. You've got to have a set of rules that we all acknowledge. Football, soccer, basketball, they, uh, hide and seek, tic-tac-toe, they all have rules. And when we engage in play, and play with others, we learn to respect them, to play fair, to not be a serious, so, a sore loser. 
But we also realize in studying play, for kids, when they're in the midst of their play, it is serious business. Serious business. They take it very, very seriously. But one of the most important things that we learn or children learn when they play is they learn how to fail. Because in play, there's not consequences as in there is in real life. Sometimes the, the, the Play-Doh figure is not going to come out perfect. Sometimes they're going to strike out. They're not going to play in the way. It's going to fail. And so what this does, all of these things, becomes a rehearsal for life. Rehearsal for life because the parents gave the child the space to play. I remember I had plenty of space to play during the summer. Go outside and don't come back in this house until it's 5 o'clock. I don't want to see you. We had plenty of space to play. We usually end up playing in the coolies, which is pretty gross, but still. But this still finds its source in the Trinity. And this is the, uh, sort of amazing mystery. There's a book called Man at Play by a theologian called Hugo Rahner. And he talks about the, the theology and the history of play and how in the early church fathers, in their writing, they saw play is rooted in the Trinity particularly the, the father who watched the son play and creation and celebrating the, 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 the world. And we can also sort of see within that trinity, the, the rest, when God rested, uh, Sabbath as a form of play, as a form of restoration, all there rooted in the mystery of the trinity that we celebrate today. But there's, as I said, there's a flip side, or I would say another complementary dimension to this. There was a poll that was done a few years back, and I think I've talked about it in a homily, of children who play sports. And they asked these kids, what is the most important thing for you to hear from your parents? Or what, what means the most when you hear it from your parents? And you'd have thought, well, maybe I'm proud of you, or good job, or better luck next time. But instead, they had almost universally a phrase that was the most important. And the kids love to hear the words from their parents, I love to watch you play. Love to watch you play. Whether it be, well, I've watched you play on the playground or to play basketball. I enjoy it for the sake of you doing it. And the parents delighting in their children as they play. It's delight is the word that I think complements complements distance. When we have distance from our children, we have distance from our friends or our family members, then we are able to delight in them. But if we're right on top of them, controlling them, demanding them to do certain things, we're enmeshed. We consume the other rather than delight in them. We all know this. The parent who's at their kid's softball game or baseball game and screaming and yelling at the ref and getting into fights with the other parents, all these kind of things. This is not delighting in the child. This is putting so much pressure on the kid to perform. A lot of the times it's the insecurity of the parent trying to live vicariously through their child. It's unintentional possibly, but it can have some very serious consequences as the child gets over. And so we have to see parents delighting in their children, 
loving to watch them play. Parents at the playground watching the kids run and scream and have a good time, delighting in their, their painting or their art project. And when they say, Mom, Dad, look at what I did, to toss the ball, to play Legos, maybe even not just watching them do it, but actually doing it with them, to play with your children. It has a profound impact on their identity. Studies have shown this. That when we are able to delight in our children, when we are able to play with them, we are showing them that we love them not based on their performance, what they do, but on their identity. I love to watch you play. You're not producing anything. You're not performing for me. You're not achieving some goal. You're just relaxing. You're just celebrating and playing. It shows that love is unconditional not based on performance or outcome. And this too, I believe, has the roots in the Trinity. The Father from all eternity delighting in the Son. And the Son delighting in the Father and from that comes forth, is breathed forth the Holy Spirit. The persons of the Trinity for all eternity adore each other. And this ecstasy in this joy. And it is shared with us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, in conclusion, this is not a foolproof way of turning out perfect kids. But it is important to be able to have that distance, that possession and detachment, if you will, to allow the child to have freedom. But when the child plays, to be able to delight in the child, to let them know that they are, it's good that they are there. It's good to have expectations. We need them. Discipline is often necessary. I mean, we have got to, I think, constantly look at ourselves in our relationship to our children, our relationship to our friends, and ask those two sort of basic questions. Am I giving my child the freedom, the space to grow and to learn, to develop? Do I let them play? And then second, do I delight in my kids, and do they know that I delight in them? that I want to spend time with them, that my face lights up whenever I see them. It's hard, though, to be able to do this. We often find that we fail as parents, whether it be with our kids or with our friends. And why is that? Because I think we turn now from this sort of horizontal delight and distance to something vertical, that we have to realize our own identity that we are beloved sons and daughters adopted through baptism in Christ, that God the Father loves us, delights in us, and gives us the freedom to grow. So we've got to learn to play ourselves. We've got to learn our identity to become like little children. It's the central mystery of becoming a Christian, is to become like a little child to be secure in our identity that God the Father loves us unconditionally and takes delight in us. And so I'll close with a quote from Hugo Rahner that sort of sums all of this up in relationships to how we should act on earth, but how it points to our ultimate destination, the great Sabbath in heaven. He says, quote, the child and man desires to play, and the final answer to that longing answer of truth to all our searchings is the word of him who being himself the word became a little child 
Unless you become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That is why the streets of the heavenly city will be filled with playing children, and the ancient of days, whose face is forever young, will never cease to say to men, Ite et ludite, translated, come and play. Amen.